0: Hello, my name is
1: Freda and I want you to panic. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another edition of Pino and Policy. I'm joined by my erstwhile companions, Sophia Freuden and Hannah Cowden. You may be familiar with us. Our general format is this. We talk about political science, international affairs, economics, various things that are ending the world. And we're drinking during it, which makes it more entertaining, I'd hope. Isn't that right, Hannah? That is correct. Yes, indeed, we're being sponsored, and by that means we're not being sponsored, by this thing called a Radler and a little bit of gin. And let me tell you, the botanicals (laughs) mix fantastically. So, you know, would recommend folks for your summer drink du jour. What really matters more is what we're doing for policy. Specifically, the world is on fire. So if you're not fully aware, the Amazon's on fire. There's some girl out from Sweden who just sailed across the planet and just landed in New York or something. And she's very special. Her name is Greta Thunberg. And she was a young lady who's pissed off every single conservative across the planet. Sophia, aren't you an expert on this Greta lady?
0: Uh, I wouldn't say that I'm an ex- expert on Greta Sundberg. I think the only person who's an expert on Greta Sundberg is probably Greta Sundberg. But I have been following her progress for the last uh, six months or so.
1: And, and what is her progress?
0: So her progress, or more more like her
1: activism,
0: so as mentioned, she is a 16-year-old Swedish girl uh, who has sort of been turning the world upside down, I think, for the better, as it relates to climate change or the climate crisis, as it's increasingly being called. And we'll look into that linguistic difference later. She has been nominated by three people within her own country, uh, like three lawmakers, I believe, to be a Nobel Peace Prize recipient. I don't think she actually won. Uh, But, I mean, if you were nominated for a Nobel Peace Prize at the age of 16, I feel like you would probably be pretty happy about that.
2: Um, Probably. uh, And she
0: has been called uh, the greatest threat threat to the fossil fuel industry by me, I think it was the chair of OPEC, which is, for those not in the know, it's the cartel that basically controls or tries to control and fails uh, oil prices worldwide.
1: So she's pissing off a lot of oligarchs, is what you're saying.
0: A lot of oligarchs, a lot of conservatives, a lot of climate change denialists, and there's been a lot of blowback about it also.
1: Right. So how dare a teenage girl try and save the world, right?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, One thing that she has done that uh, sort of sparks the the reason why we're doing this podcast in addition to the fact that it is a climate crisis and it is very dire, uh, she had a little book published called No One's Too Small to Make a Difference, uh, published through Penguin Books, that uh, is just a collection of different speeches that she's had at different political summits, things that she's posted on social media, and it's a really telling read containing a lot of really, uh, important, but also kind of, uh, heart-wrenching facts about the climate crisis. And it also, uh, I
2: lost my train of thought.
0: Well,
1: that's okay. You know, that's okay. We've all been drinking gin tonight, except for Sophia. The (laughs) thing is, is this is... Cut
2: that two (laughs) step. You know, I
1: thought it was pretty funny. Um, so... She, but anybody can be an activist. There's a lot of activists. There's something a little bit special about her, in part because she's so blunt about it. Wouldn't you argue that, Sophia? Yeah,
0: she's very blunt about it. And in fact, like the first time I watched one of her speeches, the first thing that popped into my mind is that she reminds me of Leanna Mormont from Game of Thrones. Do you guys recall who Leanna Mormont is? Yes,
1: yes, we're all nerds here, and particularly the people who are listening.
0: Okay, so if, if, in case our dear audience, you are not familiar with Game of Thrones, because I could understand after the last season why like, you would decide not to poke that uh, series with a nine foot, nine and a half a pole, uh, there's this character in the last couple of seasons of Game of Thrones named Brianna Mormont. I think she's like nine years old or ten years old or something like that when she's first introduced into the series. But as a result of various wars and and political assassinations, she is the head of her house, which is, like, an important, you know, like, a political house, basically, like, literally a family that controls a portion of land and has a small army. Um, Right. And because because she's, you know, nine or ten years old or whatever, she's just, like, this, like, very austere, very, like, harsh character, but she's nine, and it's, like, a a weird oxymoron. So, Sophia And, uh... The reason, like, why she's so austere, I think, is, you know, Greta Thunberg herself, is, uh, she says it's in part because of her autism. She's able to see things, as she calls it, in black and white. I, I, I have no comment on that because I don't have autism, so I can't speak from her perspective. But I can say that as someone who is also very young and will be severely impacted by this, I wish that there were more people out there like this talking to her. When I talk to my own friends and family, I do talk like that. My fans and family probably think that I'm a little um, wild, but, you know.
2: So, Sophia, can you give us a little more of a blanket history on Greta? Like, where where she came from, what she did that got her here?
0: Yeah. So, in 2018, she, all by herself, decided not to go to school one day, took a little sign that said, uh, school, school Strike for Climate on it in Swedish, sat outside the Swedish apartment, and and basically refused to go to school on the premise that why what's the point of going to school if she doesn't have a teacher because of climate change? Uh, and she just started by herself with a little sign. It got a lot of attention on social media pretty quickly, and within the span of a calendar year, she's now going to be speaking
2: at the United Nations General Assembly. Wow, this is a pretty notable thing that she's done.
1: So, yeah. I, I you know. Cuts to chase here. She has a pretty uh, provocative point she's making. She's essentially, if you read her little book, her version of Mao's Red Book, if you will, um, she's basically saying the world's doomed by 2030 if we don't change everything right now. I mean, I'm going to read a quick quote from her right now for everybody to know. According to the IPCC, which for other people here, it's important. It's a climate control it's commission.
0: international patent on climate change.
1: Exactly, that thing. Um, quote, according to the IPCC, We are less than 12 years away from not being able to undo our mistakes. In that time, unprecedented changes in all aspects of society need to have taken place, including reduction of our CO2 emissions by at least 50%, end quote. She eventually makes other points in her very speeches that essentially, if we don't change things now, we're going to set up a chain of positive feedback loops that essentially ruin the world forever. Which, yeah, cool. And I would argue, like, yeah, she's probably right. But how provocative she is in that everything's black and white to her, and she's saying, yeah, we need to change now, is part of that's ruffling some feathers. She went to this uh, big conference called Davos, um, where basically all the rich liberals in the world go show up to feel good about themselves in Sweden. And by Sweden, I mean Switzerland. And when they're there, she had a speech to say, hey, all of y'all are hypocrites because y'all flew here, you know, Emitting tons of carbon gases and all that stuff, and to show up talking about how you want to save the world, but you're really not saving the world at all.
2: I was going to say ruffling feathers seems to be the point.
1: Yeah, and so you know, I I think the the general conversation for us to have and for the audience is she makes points that are completely factually accurate. She's basically just quoting the UN or various um, climate control climate change experts, right? But I suppose the difference is, unlike, say, Al Gore, who's talking inconvenient truths, she's basically putting a gun, verbally speaking, to the adults in the room that we need to change things now, otherwise we all die.
2: Well, and she's she's also, because she is, at this point, still what one would call a child, for the most part, she's putting it into terms that people can understand, including her own co- cohort of children.
1: I like that. Continue. Um,
2: and something that we've read... Recently, which was a Washington Post article by Dan Zack called "How Should We? Sh- how Should We Talk About What's Happening to Our Planet?" Um, it starts the conversation on the subject of communication and how we're communicating to each other about what's going on with climate change. And I bring this up because Greta is because she is young; mm. she's able to speak to the young better. Mm. Uh, but what this this article brings up is the language in which we are speaking to each other about it and how we are being limited by words, which first started as global warming. And I bet that the two of you remember when global warming was no longer the politically correct way to phrase it and it became climate change. Because I remember that. Yeah. I remember that very well. And now we're moving closer toward climate crisis or climate catastrophe or climate emergency
1: Or human extinction? Yeah. Planetary
0: extinction.
2: Yeah. I think the planet's gonna
1: be fine. Escalation, (laughs)
0: escalation, truly,
1: right? Well, I I would say the planet's gonna be fine. The things living on Uh, it—it's a different story. Right. I don't know. I I I completely uh, hear you on this here, uh, Hannah. I would say though, what makes her a little bit special, and in part because of how blunt she is, is she's basically saying, "Yo, we have like ten years, basically, to make catastrophic changes." Otherwise, there will be a bigger cat- catastrophe. And I think the the heart of um, a lot of the blowback against her, and trust me, if you want to read it, it's pretty bad. You even had, like, the leader of UKIP, you know, UK Independence Party, one of the people who uh, tried to get Brexit to happen and won. His name's Aaron Banks, literally just, you know, calling her some special names, if you will. People are attacking her, and I think in part on the right, because she's making a point. And even some people the left.
2: And she's being somewhat
1: successful.
2: Like she's the most yeah. successful climate activist this this planet has ever seen, right? On the on the right, you mean, like like on the right wing? Yeah, on the right the, wing. On yes, the correct. And,
1: okay. and and the thing is, is then on the left, a lot of people are lionizing her. She's she's a young lady who's making a a incredible impact and making great points. However, as the resident discount economist in the room, she also has a severe lack of perspective on how the world actually works. Not to be that guy, but I'm gonna be that guy. Like, I read her book, I've read her speeches, she makes fantastic points, they're great things to share on Facebook, and she's completely right that we need to make massive changes to our society to save the world now. But I'm gonna be that guy, no matter how much you want it to happen, it won't happen. So
2: We have mean we don't need her and don't need much No
1: no no, and that's that's totally that's totally true.
2: We have a, a, a cynicist in the room.
1: Not cynicism. It's just being, it's just the reality of game theory here. So the big problem is that she makes this point where we need to cut carbon emissions, yet at the same time be commensurate to poor countries that are trying to develop so that they can develop, but at the same time not ruin the planet.
2: So to steal a line from Sophia Mm. uh, that I once heard her say, I like to be aggressively positive about things most of the time. Sure. Uh, And just because, I, I mean, I heard you say, it won't happen. Just because he's saying it, it won't Sure, happen. sure, okay. It becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy.
1: Okay, I, 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 I see and what you're trying to like say. And I would
2: like to think that, given the progress that we've made, the technology that we've developed, and the awareness that we've developed. Sure. Um, in part
0: because of Greta,
2: super. In part because of Greta, uh, that we can, if not fix everything, because I don't think we can, uh, which is the cynical side of me. Sure. Uh, fix our situation as. The course stands to go. So, like right now, we're looking at by 2030. Sure. Having thousands and thousands of people displaced.
1: Tens of thousands. Tens of thousands of
2: millions, even. Um, and at that that point, like there's, it, it, it will be very hard to turn back if we get to that point. Well, but yeah. Right now, we're gaining this awareness. Sure. And as long as we keep working on it together, sure. we can do something that will at least catch us a little bit on impact you know
1: and hannah i completely agree with you and that it's good to at least try however like you know i i i completely agree like and that hopefully a technology and people trying will will help however when i look at the situation and for people who may not be as familiar with it as simple as this paris climate accords or climate agreement however you want to call it right Basically try to commit the rest of the world to, hey, let's make sure that global warming doesn't increase the average temperature on Earth by two degrees Celsius. Because essentially after that point, apocalypse happens. And what I mean by that is, once you get a certain warming point, certain positive feedback loops of heat in the world start making it catastrophically worse. You start having the permafrost in the tundra in, oh, sorry, the taiga in uh, Russia start start melting, releasing methane gases, which increase heat more. You start losing ice shelves, water starts rising. It's essentially an exponential catastrophe. So the goal is to keep it under two degrees Celsius, right? Greta's talking about one and a half degrees Celsius. And to require that, you would literally need to have, right now, carbon emissions by 2030. I don't believe that's possible at all. I think it's a worthy goal, but the problem is this, is that not only do you have to deal with the political arrangement, because no politician on the planet, I, I'm sorry, is going to willing go, hey, everybody, you know how the economy is uh, chugging along smoothly right now? Let's cut production. No. It's a political non-starter. Now, what is a starter is saying, hey, let's increase green energy and stuff like that. But that takes time to happen. So the issue is that the decisions that need to be made to save, quote unquote, the world don't functionally work in a democratic system. Honestly. There's no electoral incentive for it.
0: Okay. What happens in four to five years when it's gotten so bad because we're already seeing bad effects from climate change sure. or climate crisis or whatever we're already seeing it today and now this is no longer a future that we were talking about i remember when i when i first started having these discussions in like elementary school or middle school about like what is climate change we We're like at some point in time in your life it will become bad guess what it's bad now right It's has gone sure. down people are already dying as a result of this animals are a point that Greta makes in her books that really struck me to my core was that we're already in the middle of an extinction-level event. It doesn't get talked about at all. And every day, we're losing up to 200 species of plants, animal, bacteria, fungi, whatever. Yep. Every day. You know? And that's, that's kind of catastrophic, right?
1: Right. Uh, so, but the, the thing I, I encounter with is that, yes, you're right, Sophia. Damage is being done. But the issue from a game-theoretical perspective is for most people— the damage, the real damage where it starts actually affecting people in Portland, Seattle, L.A., you name it, is 20, 30, 40 years down the line. So, yes, yeah. people and species in other parts of the world that don't immediately affect us will be immediately affected. But trying to get people to say, yo, cut your ex- your emissions now, come on.
2: And so, like, okay, and take this with large disclaimers because I'm only a first-year law student, um, but something that we've talked about even in just like the first 10 days of me being in law school has been um, how the law works in relation to trying to govern something like carbon emissions. Sure. And it's not as simple as just making a law. It's really not as simple as that because the economy still has to work. Yep. And so we have this situation where we're trying to define what is okay in terms of carbon emissions, But at the same time, we're putting a chokehold on the economy because we're doing that. And so it's the classic between a rock and a hard place situation. Right. And of where what do we value more? And I think we're getting to the point where we're starting to realize that we value the earth more.
1: A little bit more at least.
2: At least I hope so. Because like otherwise do this. We won't have an economy.
1: Right. right. Whoa, 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 Okay, but that's, okay. That's,
2: that's the point that I'm getting at. Yeah. Is that if we die, we will no longer have an economy. So, <laughs>
1: so, and, and here's here's the thing that, like, we're a bunch of leftists in the room saying that, and I'm gonna be, I'm, I, I, I guess I'm always the devil's advocate here. There's a reason why conservatives, even ones who believe in climate change, which and there most are plenty, of that
0: do they just don't want to talk about?
1: It. They don't want to talk about it, and if they're outside of America, they believe in climate change, but they, honest to God, don't see it a priority. To literally quote the Trump administration, they see it as a niche issue, which sounds crazy. And I would argue, yes. But the thing is, is this. The perspective is, what matters right now is current returns. Technology, historically speaking, has always saved us. So to them, um, us climate people sound like Malthusians in the 1800s who were worried there wouldn't be enough food to feed all the Irish people. I'm serious. Like to them, it's, yeah, I mean, the environment's going to suck a little bit, but technology will save us. We already have carbon reducing um, technologies, things that will literally be carbon capture. So who cares? Literally, that's part of the, the perspective. And the other thing is that the market will eventually figure it out. Things will start to get hot enough. There will be changes in the um, climate. It will become, to be honest, there will be uh, returns on investment to cl- clean energy, to, you know, seawalls, you name it. And that the free market will fix it, and so the argument that there will be an economy, I think, is, I, I think, is inaccurate. What it will be is it'll be a changed economy, and probably one that'll be worse for the majority of people on the planet. But for the average American, eh, and that's the problem. Is for the average America, it's eh.
2: But I think in in reality, if we're going by the predictions that we're being given, sure. For the average American, it will not be eh. It will be. Like literally leaving their home and moving northward right. or anywhere else. And libertarian. waters and because of yeah. heat.
1: And so the libertarian in me says, fantastic. That's a great time to increase the uh, real estate market in America. We'll have more construction. We'll be more jobs. It'll be a great time to change the uh, economic landscape. I know that sounds crazy. It does. It does. But that's literally the mindset is that, yes, it's going to happen. Yes, it's bad. But also, it's something we can't win that fight, so the better idea is to adapt to that fight. I know that sounds really fatalistic, but I think that's the heart of where a lot of the um, a lot of the opposition to our ideas, even for people who believe the science, comes from. Is that, yes, Greta, you're completely right that we're going to hit a place of no return at 2030, but the collective action problem of trying to get everybody to agree to cut all their emissions, to reduce their own economic output, to submit themselves to the political pressures where they will get voted out of office doing so, it's just not going to happen. And so the argument is that, okay, if we already know it's a lost cause, how do we make money and survive considering that lost cause? And I think that's the big discussion that we have to have is that a bunch of millennials who we do believe we should save the environment. Dude, I'm from Oregon. I believe in that too. But how do we actually get that to happen?
2: But forget the economy. Sure. It's just about survival Mm. after a certain point. Right. Yeah. I don't, I
0: don't, yeah, I mean, I just, I think Drake and, Drake and I, and I don't want to speak on your behalf, Hannah, but Drake and I have like a fundamentally different understanding of like the facts that Greta put in her book. Like, to me, I don't see a situation in in which truly the economy exists really at all. And maybe I am reading into her words a little bit too much. Maybe I'm reading to the IPCC's, the IPCC's report a little bit too much. But when we're talking about a point of no return in 2030, we are talk- we're, not- we're talking about something that this planet has never experienced before, you know, in terms of one species causing massive worldwide disruption. Right? Like, sure, the planet, I guess, has been hit by a comet before, and that was pretty bad, and we probably can't rise to that level as a species on a certain extent. But guess what? It did cause an extinction-level event, and there aren't dinosaurs anymore, right? We're headed towards a similar situation. I don't think it is about changing the economy and putting up sea walls. I think it is either we do literally everything that we can, or we die.
1: Right, and Sophia the the opposition would say you sound like Malthus saying hey we need to restrict the birth rate of irishmen right now and also we should start leban's realm and start taking over certain parts of the world so we can have enough room to create grain i know that sounds crazy but like that is literally the counter argument to it is that i completely agree we may be in a situation where there's catastrophic environmental damage people are going to be dying sure right but the other argument is that there might be technology that will fix it That the ingenuity of humanity, like in previous crisis situations, right, will end up fixing the problem. And that in the end, we may be able to make certain marginal adjustments to our lifestyles to try and stop this inevitable heating. But it's already past the point of no return anyway. And there's no unilateral incentive for everybody to cooperate. So the better use of our resources is to adapt to it and profit off of it. Which I'd like to dovetail into, for instance, why the Brazilian president doesn't really care about the Amazon burning, or why, for instance, a bunch of far-righters really want to annex Greenland.
2: Okay, can we talk about the Amazon for a minute? I would love to. So the Amazon is on fire. Yep. Right now. Mm-hmm. Brazil, and we can get into the politics of this at a different point. Sure. But um, doesn't have the resources to fight the fire. Uh, oh, they definitely do. They
0: definitely
2: have the resources okay. to fight
0: the
1: fire. They don't have the political well, will?
2: They're not fighting the fire. Let's there put we it go. that way. And uh, something that's really really scary about it is that the Amazon, in slang term, has sometimes been called the lungs of the earth. Right. And so what I'm concerned about is how the predictions of climate scientists would change had they known that something catastrophic like the Amazon burning down would affect our rates in progression on climate change. Yeah. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, and I assume that these are all estimates, so they do—they inherently do, uh, contain a margin of error. I haven't read the full details of the IC, uh, IP, or sorry, ICPP report, in part because it's really, really long. I assume that they would... Not just a whole, like, a ceteris paribus. Like, I assume that there's kind of fluctuations that they assume that as things get worse over the years, more forests will get burned down or cut down or whatever. So I'm not sure. I can't answer that question. I do know that um, one thing that people have been talking about, and it's been kind of difficult to fact check this. They say that the Amazon has been on fire uh, this year, and it's not as bad as the decadal average. Like, it's not as bad as most buyers career. Yeah, it's just really bad this year compared to last year. So, but I've been having a hard, really hard time fact checking that. And so, like, I don't necessarily want to say that that's what's happening right now. So, Sophia, and part, like, sorry, Drake, even if that is the case, uh, I really don't care because the Amazon shouldn't be burning. Down, so,
1: Sophia, like, I completely agree, it shouldn't be burning. But I, I will say this is another situation where the conservatives come after us. Is it burns every year? It's just burning a little bit more than usual, like this year. Most and of that. And it shouldn't be burning at all. That's right. I, 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 well, that's a normative argument. I, I mean, slash and burn has been a thing for 20, 30 years. It's literally part of the agriculture of that region. It supports Brazil's economy. That's why, let's be honest, Jair Bolsonaro, their new president, doesn't care. And I, I would argue that, yes, we should care about the Amazon. It's a home of millions of different species, and it's, you know, people call it Earth's lungs. It is a carbon capture device, but...
0: It, it does produce 20% of the Earth's oxygen, and that is a fact.
1: Well, uh, you should t- see the headline of today's Atlantic. We'll just say that. Do quote, the Amazon is not Earth's lungs. Subquote, humans could burn every living thing on the planet and still not dense its oxygen supply. End quote, August 27, 2019. So the point I'm saying is this, is that this ends up being one of the situations where the conservatives come come at us for, if not fake news, but news that suits our purposes towards the environment. And so what I'm <laughs> saying is that I know it sucks that the Amazon's burning and we should fix it. But if we're going to make arguments for climate change, I think this is one where we can lose that argument because it's something that happens every year. It's something that is another case of a collective action problem where Brazil's not going to work with us. They were literally Brazil was giving... Emmanuel Macron, like, a ton of problems with trying to even donate money to fix the problem.
2: Drake, not to be harsh on you.
1: Right sure, now, go for it. Uh,
2: but if you could get out of politician mode mm-hmm. and get into science mode. Okay,
1: fine, fine. I, I enjoy living in this world, <laughs> I suppose.
2: Like, I'm just saying, because, like, at the point where, like Sophia's saying, and I I've, I've, I know her so that I, I believe her statistics are sure. well-sourced, uh, whether I know what they are or not, um, 20% of the Earth's oxygen... That's a lot of oxygen. That is like a significant amount of oxygen. And I would love so, to see
1: where that comes from.
2: Regardless of whether the Amazon burns every year or not, like everything, it's it's cumulative at this point. Yeah. Like it's it's cumulative. So all of the trees so, that leave us. I'm,
1: I'm quoting this right now. The Amazon produces about almost 6% of the oxygen currently being made by photosynthetic organisms alive on the planet today. I don't know where the 20% comes from. Maybe it's from Axios. I don't know. But we, I'm saying is that when we start throwing these numbers around, and I know I'm a scientist. I, I like science as much as anybody else. I'm saying politically speaking, this is how we lose that fight. Because although we okay. want to go after the right for fake news, the right has no rules. Okay. They so will go after us if we even mess up he, once.
2: I have an idea. You be the politician. Sure. I will get better at science. Sure. Because I'm not very good at science. But where I'm standing in this argument is... Reality is as reality is. Sure. And we need to be afraid. And I, like, expletive all politics. Sure. Because it's just slowing us down.
1: Right. So, and speaking from the political perspective, how, like, what what keeps flummoxing me is that I, I used to never have this political perspective. I, I was Mr. like Climate Rights Kid back in, like, I want to say, like, middle school where I was yelling about how we need to have hydrogen fuel cell cars, Right. So this, this is an alien position for me to take, but I'm taking it anyway, is I, I can't see a way to square the circle from a political perspective. Is that to make the catastrophic, make the changes that will stop this catastrophe requires political powers that democracies don't really have. The game theory of trying to run a democracy to keep everybody happy, right, without getting voted out and the incentives for politicians to do it are thin. The countries that can pull this off are, ironically, totalitarian. It's part of the reason why China is, for instance, one of the world leaders in solar power. And so what's worrying for me is that the countries that care the most about climate, at least, you know, on a population base, so a bunch of Americans who are, you know, protesting about it, or some Swedish girl who's being incredibly brave, are also the countries least equipped politically to make the biggest dent. And that's the irony to it, to me.
0: Uh I understand where Drake is coming from in terms of the feasibility. I also worry, as I mentioned earlier in this episode, that it creates a self-fulfilling prophecy. If each and every one of us doesn't do everything that we absolutely can to tackle this issue, Drake is correct. It will go nowhere. I also think to actually argue with Drake using his own sort of economic, uh, economistic worldview, um, once enough people die, once there's enough damage, like I quote-unquote real damage where it really truly does affect people on a day-to-day basis, even in a democracy they'll be forced to act, it might just be too late.
1: Right, and that's literally what I'm saying, is that by the time democracies can really act, it is too late. And that, if anything, if there's the, the fundamental irony to our free society, is that a free society of people who actually care about the issue, because of the political incentives, the, the game theory of it, to say the least – Makes it uh, intractably difficult to make policy to change the problem. And that the people who, the, the type of governmental structure to implement the changes that Greta asks for, that we suddenly just halt 50% of carbon emissions, for instance, right, is most equipped for countries that are, to be quite frank, totalitarian, communistic, arguably. And that's not necessarily inherently wrong thing. I mean, Thomas Friedman used to joke about what magical things we could do as America if we suddenly had the powers of China. Or we could just make things happen as liberals, but we can't. And that's the thing that's the hardest for me is that I care about the environment, but okay. how do we do it?
2: So I'm seeing that I'm I'm with you, and I'm not with you.
1: Sure. And I
2: am also like trying to reconcile these two stances. It's like that's where why I say getting hung up on politics sure. is going to slow us down is because the society that I live in don't know about you, Drake. <laughs> yeah. Is a democratic society. Sure. Um, and so. <laughs> And also, as I am, like, sorry to bring it up again, as I'm getting more used to being in law as a law student... Almost one of the uh, best
1: environmental law schools on the planet. Yeah.
2: Which, like, yes, indeed. But, like, it's so slow. The system is so slow. So if we want to have any chance at, like, you know, not dying... Sure. Or, like, not getting to a place where democracy can't do anything about it... I, I mean, I think we may already be there, arguably. Um, but... We can't bank on politics to do this. We can't even involve the political system to do this.
1: So how then?
2: Um, I don't know. Anarchy. Well, China. I don't know. Just well, like that's, do that's it the problem. Like, at it's the a, individual level. Well,
1: and the thing is, that you sound a lot like Greta, and you're right. We you should just quote unquote do it, but
2: but it's it's how? also like like as somebody who's grown up in the democratic system, and I I see like how these systems work. I know what's going on. It's one of those moments where I want to scream cry and run away because i don't know what to do like how how in the world do we fix this
0: yeah and uh, to put a hat on that I, I know you guys are gonna both roll your eyes on uh, roll your eyes at i have studied authoritarian democ- uh, authoritarian systems pretty extensively uh i do worry honestly like i i do, Truly foresee that a number of the world countries, maybe the United States, maybe not the United States, will take a more authoritarian bent as climate the climate crisis gets worse. It's inevitable. It's rational. That might, again, that might be too late, but I, I predict predicted that, that will be the case because at a certain point in time, like it will just become so bad that maybe martial law has to be declared. Right. Maybe, like, and maybe that's these are real realities.
2: Maybe that's what needs to happen, though, because like I said before, at a certain point, it's about survival.
1: So and and here's here's the biggest question, then, is how does a liberal democracy survive when you have imminent threats that are catastrophic? Right. You you, you realize, like, I, I don't know if anybody reads Plato or like knows a whole lot about like Roman history or whatever, but this is literally where a tyranny comes in. And tyranny, literally a tyrant was not necessarily always seen as a bad thing. Tyrant literally was a temporary dictator to try and save the republic to make decisions that were needed to be made. Yeah, but Rome liked
0: their tyrants so much, they kept them
1: around. And that's the problem, is that literally a democracy, by its inherent nature, is meant to be slow, deliberative, in, in theory, a democratic republic, mind you. In theory, that produces better outcomes in the long term. But when you have something that, based on the political calculus, nobody has a unilateral incentive to deviate from... You do need or would be easier if you had somebody say, no, we're going to make this change now. problem is that doesn't jive with our current political system. The irony is that the people who want to make the change towards the climate the most are people who are least likely to support a tyrannical dictator. It's hilarious, even though it would be magical if we had an emperor just to make it happen.
2: At the same time, policy change can be made. Sure, without and, a vote. And things like this in American history have
0: occurred, right? 18, uh, 1860s, let's plot out the history books for a second. What was, All right, friends, what was going on in the 1860s in America? Do we remember?
1: Well, yeah, Lincoln was called a tyrant many times because he suspended habeas corpus, for instance.
0: And why did he do
1: that? To save the Republic. Like but I know, it works. I mean, yeah, but there's one thing when you have an imminent civil war, it's another when you have an abstract. Oh yeah, the world's gonna die in 30 years.
2: But but we have these these systems in place so that like like take for example executive what what is it called it, what, executive, executive orders, orders. Yeah. executive orders sure um that's there
1: yeah but they, for those a are reason. limited those are limited in scope and can be overturned sure. in four years
2: but we also have Congress <laughs> who who. St- makes laws. Like, literally makes laws. And I don't know about you, but I don't remember the last time I voted on Congress's Sure. literal statutes that they're putting into place.
1: No. So, this, this is where, like, as an American, I would argue, vote blue because the blue people are the only ones who care. A. B. Hope that the blue people win. And C. Argue that the blue people should care about environmentalism. And then D. Hope Hope that works.
2: Okay, so <laughs> you're taking a broad view of the entire system. Sure. What I'm thinking about is something that I learned while I was writing my thesis, which is that changing policy is hard. And the context of it was that countries, developing countries, were liberalizing their economies. Sure. So they decided to make this policy change
1: uh-huh.
2: to liberalize their economies. Right. And a lot of people were very unhappy about it. Mm-hmm. But they did it anyway. Yeah. And it was really very painful. And guess where they are now? Where are they now? India, for example, yeah. is one of the largest economic powers in the world. Yeah. So they were a part of that wave. Sure. In the 90s. And uh,
1: I, Korea, that's, I that,
2: well, that's the thing is, it's just that that policy change is really painful. Right. But it has to be done.
1: So if anything, this reminds me of the Australians who, may, who did the gun buyback program back in, what, the 90s, right? They cared about the issue. They did the gun back program. They got rid of all the guns, effectively. And then they were all voted out of office. But they saved a lot of lives. So then the question then is, is how do we get politicians to essentially go against their own self-interest to save the rest of the world? And maybe I'm just a syndicate, care, I just don't think that's usually feasible. And, like, I'm serious. And so, for me, what's more important is that I think we should try and make incremental changes. We should still try in a Sisyphean way to vote for the people who will make those policy changes, right? You know, go Bernie 20 forever, whatever, right? (laughs) But, and here's my big but, that's, like, my 5% chance we'll be saved. My 95% chance saying, okay, what should we prepare for is, okay, the world's still going to start to end. How do we survive in that ending world?
0: Well, this is where I butt in and say, why can't we do both at the same time?
1: Well, I'm not arguing with that. I'm saying we should still vote for the people who care.
0: Who was it it that famously said that we can chew gum and walk at the same time? I think that's a Joe Biden thing. I don't know. But yeah, we have to chew gum and walk at
1: the same time. Sure. And Sophia, I'm not arguing against that. I'm just saying we can't hitch our hopes on... Greta being right and we can all change I'm saying is that yeah we should still vote blue we should still donate to the right people but I think more likely than not we need to prepare for the situation of okay people are going to be moving north cool how can we buy real estate and say Virginia to make some money off of that
2: but part of the argument that I was making is that incremental change doesn't work when you need something to change and it's do or die it can't be incremental
1: alright Rose Pierre sure but we could live in a country that's literally lived off of incrementalism over 200-odd years.
2: Yeah, but, like, <laughs> we are only one country.
1: Sure. I guess. Yeah.
0: We are also the largest carbon—well, actually, second largest carbon-producing country on the planet.
1: Thank you, China.
2: But that's what I'm saying about the, the economic policy change. Sure. Was that the discovery was that incremental change wasn't working. And so if these developing countries wanted to join— the global economy sure they had to do it now or they had to lose the game
1: right and so i guess this, the, the follow-up would be okay whoever's the next president or whoever we're trying to vote yo you want to do like a green policy initiative that actually will make other people want to you know buy in you know like that that would be the argument is that to me there's no reason why you can't like i'm gonna be honest americans we're more conservative than the rest of the world on of most industrialized com- countries and not necessarily socially, well, often, but not necessarily, right? But quite frankly, people here are capitalistic. They want to make a buck, so on and so forth. So if we're going to make policy to make people, you know, care about the environment, to me it's silly that we haven't, like, said, okay, let's do, like, a Green New Deal, quote-unquote, and not necessarily as politically provocative as what, you know, the, quote-unquote, squad wants, right? Say, okay, we're going to make a ton of American jobs, building solar panels, taking over Greenland, you name it, Right? in effect, trying to make change. I, I like the catastrophic uh, viewpoint you have. I'm just cynical, and I don't think it's going to happen.
2: And I, I think that if it doesn't happen, we're all going to die.
1: Uh, I think we're going to be fine. I think just billions of people will be in danger. That, that, that That's not me that's saying— That's not
2: much better.
1: <laughs> I mean, morally.
2: I mean, it's not <laughs> like we're all going to die all at the same time. No.
1: Here's, here's the worst part is that, like, historically speaking— empires rise and fall, there's environmental disasters, species die, it's terrible, and I don't want that to happen, but I'm just not convinced we're up to the task. And if we, and, and, and so if I'm not convinced we're up to the task, and we should still try for the sake of trying, I just don't think we're going to win, then okay, what's the contingency plan if we don't win that? And when I look at it game theoretically, I think we're probably going to be okay. And the unfortunate thing is, is that most people aren't. And that's the thing we need to reconcile with and write some really cool books about in like a hundred years. Like, that's me being glib, but it's also me being realistic, is that there's a lot of pain coming, and the unfortunate part is for the global north, we're going to mostly be okay. And that's the guilt we need to take with us. And that the fact that the majority of humanity is actually in the danger zone, and politically speaking, there's not a whole lot of incentive to change that. Anyways, depressing as usual, I'm sorry. (laughs) I suppose this is where we enter the arbitration round. Yeah, I love the arbitration round. You know, people can't see it, but Hannah's cackling. (laughs) Um, So basically, for new viewers and old viewers, we go around this table, this metaphorical table, and say what we think is going to happen and what should happen in a brief paragraph or less. Sophia, you look happy. Tell us what your arbitration is.
0: My arbitration, I'm gonna I'm going to repeat the phrase that I once said upon a time that Hannah quoted earlier in this episode, is that I'm going to choose to be aggressively positive about this uh, with a big asterisk on that, and that is that I think things are going to get bad, truly. Uh, I, Despite what Drake says, I, I worry about my own safety. I worry about people within this country, because at a certain point in time, not only will people be moving north, but water sources will dry up. That's already starting to happen in the Pacific Northwest where whole communities are, are facing... Um, having to turn their taps off, potentially, because they're running out of water. Like, that's already happening now. I think things could get violent, whatever. That being said, I think that between a weird uh, combination of activism, the fact that this is just becoming increasingly, increasingly more undeniable, and um, also technologies becoming cheaper or more radicalized or whatever, we do stand a fighting chance, right? And who knows, that the, the my one... Kind of shining beacon that I've been clinging on to in the last like three months or so to stave off the true panic attacks that come when I try to think about this is that the, the rhetoric over the last year about this climate issue has changed incredibly you know where was Greta Thunberg a year ago nowhere now she's here right Uh, and that's just one example, right? The fact that this gets talked on social media endlessly, the fact that environmental headlines don't just disappear from the news cycle there now, they're there all the time, that gives me hope that people are taking this serious, this issue very seriously. So, again, aggressive, aggressive positivity with a big asterisk.
1: Great. All right. Hannah.
2: I'm with Sophia on the aggressive positivity in part because it keeps me sane, but, uh, also... To also piggyback off of what Sophia was saying, it is being talked about more. And mm. something I I said to Drake earlier, which was not part of the podcast, was that in my own neighborhood, there are signs popping up, uh, big signs pulled on trailers that you would have to hitch a car to, to, to move. They say, climate emergency, this is not a drill. Hmm. And that's Extinction Rebellion, and uh, something that I had not heard of until their sign was posted in my community. But where I really stand on this is that policy change is not something that we can do slowly in a situation that is happening so fast. Mm. We have to jump on a paradigm shift. Sure. Which means that for us as scholars, we have an immense responsibility to figure out what's going on, not only in the past, how it relates to politics, how it relates to the present, and how it might relate to the future, uh, but what we need to do right now and what policies need to be made right now in order to have a future that is livable. And so if we have this status quo that we hold so much value to, we need to also engage in a paradigm shift Okay. in our thinking about climate change.
1: Fair point. So my argument is that I completely agree morally, philosophically with Hannah and Sophia, that we should try our hardest, that we should make every effort possible, that Greta should be commended, that those oil bastards out in the distance are bad people, and that we should make the changes we try to make. I just think we're going to fail, more likely than not. And, to try, honestly. and I'm not denying that. I think it's noble. You know, this is really just the charge of the Light Brigade on a certain level. And we're going to give it a shot, but we're going to be mown down. And then my only follow-up statement is that, okay, considering that we're more than likely going to fail... How do we survive that situation? And that's what I'm more concerned about. And that's a discussion for another podcast. A more depressing, post-apocalyptic one, I suppose. But I think that we should do everything that you all just said. I just doubt we're going to win. Does that make sense?
2: I think we can yeah. do anything we set our minds to.
1: I mean, that's what we were told before, like, our entire generation had a ton of debt and no jobs. So, yeah. Yeah, we can, we can try.
2: <laughs> the cynic in the room. I, 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 I just... I, like, I choose... Let me let me let me say this in, in parcels. I choose mm. to believe uh-huh. that we can do anything we set our minds to.
1: I
0: like that statement. It is a choice. Yeah. The aggressive positivity, and that's an important part of the quote that actually got that left out. Like I I forget what I said originally, but basically I make a conscious choice every day to be aggressively positive about this issue and about other things. Because if you don't, you will shut down and also just compound the
1: problem. Yep. I mean, I'd like to see the evidence on that, but I like the sentiment. Uh, this is just my own
0: anecdotal, like, my anecdotal experience. No, 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 no. This isn't just right? start of a whole no, different...
1: There's no evidence. It's just Sophia letting um, Right, right. And if that works for Sophia, fantastic. I was being glib. The point is, is that we've made our arbitrated moats. I've been outvoted. I think positivity <laughs> will win the day. Friendship is magic. So on and so forth. It's been fantastic having this argument with my close friends and colleagues. Um, we're out of time. Thank you so much for listening to us argue. Usually we're on the same page. This makes it quite the entertaining podcast for once. I would like to, as always, thank Sophia and Hannah for joining me on this podcast. Also, for us um, having a good time drinking and talking about very important death-defying subjects. And, of course, finally, our lovely producer, Steph, for editing out the nonsense in between. You can catch... Pinot and policy on any place you want to listen to podcasts, which is more than likely or not is on, like, Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Let's be real. Who uses Spreaker anymore?
2: We are not on Spotify.
1: Oh, we're not on Spotify. I lied. Anyway, the point is this. Catch us wherever you can listen to podcasts that matter to you. Principally, Apple Podcasts. And, uh, catch us next time we're here. You can check us out on Arbiture.org and also our Facebook, which is also Arbiture. Take it easy, folks, and we'll see you next time.